Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I told you last week that we are going to be spending several weeks in these first verses of, of chapter 12, and, and we are. Uh, today I'm probably not even going to get as far as the title indicates and what I'd scheduled to do because I kind of got to thinking about another direction after I had this printed. That's the problem of printing a sermon in a bulletin. You know, you just feel like you shouldn't change it. But I am, all right? So uh, on about uh, Friday or so, this kind of started developing as I was working on it a whole nother way. And so I want you to bear with me on that. We will talk a little bit about discipline, but not as much as we will next week. The writer of Hebrews, in writing in this 12th chapter, is coming out of the 11th chapter, talking about all of the great saints of the Old Testament who had faith in God, who were justified by their faith in the coming Christ. They weren't justified by their works. They weren't justified by the law. No one ever is. And he's making the point that the only way a man is made right with God or a woman is made right with God, justified in the sight of God, is by faith. It's by belief. It's by trusting in all that God has said. And it's no different today than it was in the Old Testament, except that in the Old Testament they had the disadvantage, if you will, of having to believe forward in a Christ that was yet to come. We had the benefit on this side of the cross of looking back and realizing that we worship and we believe and we have faith on the basis of an accomplished historical fact that has been done in time and space and has been proclaimed to us through the apostles and by the word. So, so as we look at that, we understand that there's, it's all by faith. And, and in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, he, he starts out by simply saying, Therefore, since there's so great a cloud of witnesses, got a lot of heritage testifying to and witnessing to the fact that faith alone saves. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, follow along with me as I read, surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, oh, that's, a, that's a strong word, consider him, Think about Him. Fix your eyes on Him, but don't just look at Him. Consider Him. Think about Him. Meditate on Him. Acknowledge that it's, it's He who you should be looking to. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you may not, you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation, and, or, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. But those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which, uh, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For daughters. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. In other words, they, and, and being a father at least 31 years, I, I know this to be true. They did the best they could. <laughs> they, they did what was best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our own good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is the word of our God. When the writer here breaks forth on this chapter and begins to talk to us about this laying aside of every encumbrance and sin that easily entangles us. We talked about last week how he was giving an analogy or a picture of a race where you, you take off all the garments that would, would get in your way. You put aside all the coats and ties and, and long pants. You put on a pair of running shorts and running shoes and as little clothing, as little weight as you can so that you can run the race effectively. And that's the picture he's drawing for you and me, saying that if you want to run the race with Christ, if you want to run the race of the Christian life effectively, if you want to be what you're supposed to be as a believer, then you've got to put off Every You've got to lay aside every encumbrance. You've got to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, someone asked me last week, said, is there, is there, a, better, is there a better way to put that every encumbrance and every sin? I mean, that sounds kind of clear to me, but that's a legitimate question. Is there another way to say that? And I would say, yes, there is. The writer could have easily said, and I want you to let, let us all lay aside every idol and every sin that so easily entangles us. Let's put aside every idol. You know, idolatry is a problem for Christians in the 21st century just as much or more so than it was in the, the day of the writer here or the day of the, the prophets in the Old Testament or the day of Jesus. Idols were a big deal back then because they all had these multitude of gods and they, they had an idol for this god and an idol for that god and, and they would bow down and worship them. We had the reading from Isaiah that we'll mention again in a minute about how man takes a piece of wood and he lights a fire and he cooks his food and he warms himself and he's got some left over. So out of that same thing that he gets some profit from, some physical uh, benefit from, he takes that same piece of wood and he fashions it into an idol and he bows down and worships it and says to that piece of wood that he just cooked with part of it and warmed himself with part of it, now deliver me, help me, save me, protect me. And, and the, the idol has no ears to hear and no eyes to see and no hands to do anything. The idol is just a dumb piece of wood. And he, they worship it. We look at that and we say, well, that is foolish. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is the epitome of foolishness. To take a piece of wood or even metal and jewels and gold and all that and, and make some kind of idol and think that that which I have made 
is what will deliver me and what will save me. That which I fashioned as I wanted it to appear, that's what made is made kind of in my image that I will worship and I will bow down to and I will give allegiance to and I will expect that which I made to deliver me. And we look at that and we say, that's just foolishness. I mean, who in the world would ever do such a thing? But I would contend to you today that one of the most dangerous challenges to Christians' life in this century, in this generation, in our time, is the same challenge it was in those times. It's the challenge of idolatry. And I think what the writer here is saying, he says, lay aside every encumbrance and every sin that easily entangles us. Those encumbrances are really idols that are in our life. Now, they may not be wooden statues. They may not be gold statues. They may not even be things that we set on a shelf somewhere. But nonetheless, they are idols that have taken over our life. Os Guinness said in the book that he wrote with John Seal, No God But God, he said this, Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why so many evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in their lives. Contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and the destruction of idols. End quote. That's a, that's a phenomenal statement, folks. And it's a very true statement based on what the writer here is saying about laying aside every encumbrance. Basically, anything that encumbers us in our looking to Christ, anything that encumbers us and hinders us in our trusting Christ and following Christ and keeping our eyes fixed on Christ is an idol in our lives. Now, they may not, it may not be bowing down to statues of carved wood and stone, it, but what it is, it's letting stuff, and you put whatever you want in that word stuff, that's a, that's a pregnant word. It can carry with it all sorts of meanings and, and you do it for yourself. But it's letting stuff, whatever your stuff might be, get in a position of greatest importance in your life. That's what an idol is. That's what an encumbrance is. It's when something so captivates us, so enthralls us, that we look away from Christ and have to be reminded to look back to Christ and fix our eyes on Christ. We look away from Christ to this thing. In our world, it can be anything and everything. Some of you, if I go past 1130, are going to get real nervous because there's something happening at 12 o'clock. I want to crush that idol today. I want you to lay it aside and not let it be an encumbrance to you. I promise I won't preach till 1230, but I'm tempted to. Um, any stuff, any allegiance, any activity, any sport, any recreation, anything that, that we just get so captivated in that it draws us away from worship and it draws our attention away from Christ is an idol. And no matter how good it is, because idols can be good things, no matter how good it is, if it draws our attention away from Christ, it becomes an idol and it becomes detrimental to our walk with Christ. John Calvin said one time in his institutes, he said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is an expert at inventing 
idols. Now just think about that for a minute. The human heart is a factory of idols. Why? From our, very, from our mother's womb, every one of us is an expert at inventing idols. And they change and they shift and they, new idols come in and old idols may depart. But nonetheless, it seems like the human heart, even the Christian human heart, folks, has a propensity to let stuff get in the way of our walk with Christ. And so that's why the writer says here, lay aside every encumbrance and every sin that is keeping you from fixing your eyes on Jesus. The totality of the Bible talks about that. I mean, when Paul sums up the fall in Romans chapter 1 and just kind of gives a summation, a theological summation of what happened in the fall in the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity into sin, he does it by describing it in terms of idolatry. You can read that later in Romans 1, 23 and 24. If you look at the law, the revelation of God under the old covenant, when God revealed himself through the law to Moses, the very first thing he dealt with was idolatry. The very first prohibition was a prohibition against idolatry in the first and the second commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not fashion after yourself a graven image, but you shall worship the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, being, and spirit. You're to worship Him. There was that in the law, this warning against and prohibition of idolatry. You look at the Psalms and the Psalms spend a great amount of time praying against idols. David leading us in an understanding of, of how we must pray that idols don't grip our life. We talked last week about a Psalm where David said, you know, don't let, don't let these presumptuous sins rule over me. That's letting things get in that I just assume God will say okay about when they're really not okay. The prophets like Ricky read earlier, Brother Ricky read in the scripture reading from Isaiah 44, the prophets preached against the idols. And the New Testament over and over and over again warns us against idols in our life. And without using the term, that's exactly what verse 1 of this particular chapter in Hebrews is talking about. Watch out for the idols, get them aside, learn to identify them, if you don't identify the idols in your life, you won't be able to get rid of them. Is that a safe thing to say? Do you, you understand that? That if you don't know what they are, you'll just kind of let them keep going. Now, I identified one for you already. I won't rehash that one. But you have to identify the idols. What are some ways you do that? Again, remembering that they're not necessarily bad things. They're not Buddhas sitting in your living room that you go and bow down to. They're not... They're not uh, uh, something that you would say, oh, well, I have to do this in a certain way. It, it's, it's not that at all. Sometimes it's very good things that have been elevated in our life that have become idols because they block that vision of Christ. You remember several years ago we talked about the whole concept of the eclipse of God in our life and what an eclipse is? You know, you have a, a solar eclipse is an eclipse of the sun. The sun's very bright. The sun is very powerful. The, the sun burns with enormous power and brightness. And, and, and yet when a solar eclipse happen, happens and the moon just kind of moves in position between the earth and the sun, it blocks it out. And for a period of time, it looks as though 
it really looks like the sun has been extinguished. Looks like the sun has lost all of its radiance. Looks like the sun has lost all of its power, all of its brightness, all of its heat. It's just gone. The moon is between us and the sun, and, and we cannot see the sun, and it eclipses the sun. Does the sun really lose any of its power? Does the sun really lose any of its brightness? Does the sun lose anything? No. It's just eclipsed. It's just blocked. It's just not visible. That's what we allow idols to do in our lives. They, they, they just move in between our understanding of Christ, our seeing of Christ, and the glory of God, and the, the glory of Christ, and they, they eclipse it. Now, fortunately for us, the moon pretty quickly moves on and unblocks the sun and it's back. The problem in many of our lives as Christians is, is those idols just kind of lay there. They just kind of stay there and, and they, they continue to block. They can continue to block our fixing our eyes on Jesus. So the writer says, get rid of them. Lay them aside. Every encumbrance, every idol, every sin that entangles you. Well, how do you, how do you evaluate? What, what can be some idols in your life? Well, I could spend probably the rest of the day naming idols that are potential items for every one of us that are good things that if elevated to a place of ultimate importance become an idol. Think about work, jobs. You know, work is, is not only a good thing, it is a commanded thing in the Scripture. God says, says if, you, if a man doesn't work, then don't let him what? Eat. Yeah. It's pretty important. Work is elevated to a very important position. God says do it. You are to be about working. That's a part of our life on this side of the fall is that we are to work with the sweat of our brow. We're to make that a, a priority in our life. But it can become an idol if it's pursued so exclusively that your walk with Christ and your family is ignored. Becomes an idol. Or what about family? Family, marriage, family is the first institution that God ever made before the church, before the government, before anything else. He established the family in the Garden of Eden. It is an important thing. But it can become an idol if one is so preoccupied with the family that no one outside of that immediate family is cared for, ministered to, or that Christ is neglected and worship is neglected because we have to do stuff with and for our family. It becomes an idol if it, if it di directs you away from proper worship of God. Or, or even something as simple as, as being well-liked. You know, I mean, that's a legitimate hope. I, I, I want you to know I'm... That's one of my greatest hopes in life. I hope you like me. I really do. I, I, want to be, I, I hope to be liked by everyone. Hadn't worked out so well all my life, but I, I like that, and I hope for that. But, it, but if you take the, the hope and the desire of being well-liked, which is a, perver, per, a perfectly legitimate hope, and, and you, you sort of elevate it to a point that you want to be liked so much that you never even risk disapproval by someone by telling them the truth, by speaking the truth to them in love, like we talked about in Sunday school, then it becomes an idol. And my happiness, my security, my desires are wrapped up in 
my being well liked, that's an idol that has to be put aside. I'll be honest, I really do like being well liked, but I never have, uh, I've struggled that, to not let that be an idol, so I try to speak the truth. And that doesn't always work out to make that a reality in my life. That's okay. Because that can become an idol if we're not careful. You could go on and on. I mean, we could spend hours talking about a, 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 an idol of power. You know, where you, life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. If, if I can be in control, that's an idol. We could talk about an approval idolatry, which, which means life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am loved and approved, approved by and fill in the blank. It might be an individual, it might be a group. We can even talk about comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have work if I have this kind of pleasure or experience or a particular quality of life. And if I don't reach this quality of life and this standard of living, then, then I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to have any meaning. I mean, that can become an idolatry. Uh, we, we make an idolatry out of safety. Oh, we, we don't want to take risks for the kingdom of God. And so our safety and our comfort is, is a part of idolatry. Oh, we could look at we can look at independence idolatry. I will be independent of all people. I'll, I'll only be happy. I'll only have meaning if I'm completely free from obligations or, or responsibilities to take care of somebody else. I want to be just in charge of my own life. Or, or materialism idolatry. You know, the, uh, I have to have a certain level of wealth and I have to have financial freedom and I have to have very nice possessions. That's a, a materialistic idolatry. There's even a religion idolatry that, that I will only be happy functioning within the context of, of my church or my religion's moral code and, and accomplished in its activities. I want to be, I want to be known as a, a person who is, a, is really important in the church That's, or important in my religion. That's a religious idol. And as I say, we could go on and on and on talking about things that can become an idol and can become an encumbrance in your life, in my life, that will eclipse the view of Christ. Now, the writer says, put it aside, run with endurance, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, that, and really, that's the only thing that will destroy an idol in your life if you fix your eyes on Jesus and recognize Him, as we talked about last week, which is so important, as perfecter and, uh, author and perfecter, author and finisher, beginner and finisher of our faith. Because, as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, you know, we need to realize that, that, that He who began a good work in us will perfect it or will complete it in the day of Christ. And that's the difference between the idolatry of, of, of Hinduism or Buddhism or, or, or Islam or any other religion in the world that you could name. Every other religion will have a founder, but they don't have a finisher. They can tell you how to get started. They can tell you where to go. They can tell you how to work at it. And they can tell you, maybe you'll make it. We have an author of our salvation. We have a finisher of our salvation who says not only this is how you walk, but I will go with you and I will be with you and I will carry you and I will encourage you and I will strengthen you and I will be to you everything you need 
to finish well and to finish the course. He doesn't leave us to try to do it ourselves. He's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. Then we get down in verse 3. That's as far as we'll get. He says, consider him. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why does he say that? Well, he, he's preparing us for, for suffering. He's preparing us for difficult times in our life. He's, he's preparing us as he showed us through all of those, those saints of the Old Testament that all is not going to be a bed of roses. But he's saying, listen, when you, when you start having suffering in your life, when you start having difficulties in your life, consider him. Think on him. He didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything to bring it on other than speak the truth. But consider him who has endured such hostility. It's a strong word there. Such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you know when suffering comes in your life, whether it's suffering for being a Christian or whether it's just pain or whether it's sickness or whether it's loss and grief, I spoke between the Sunday school hour and this hour with a friend of mine in Florida, one of my closest friends, Steve Deloach, and he, uh, Steve was getting some counsel because at 2 o'clock this afternoon, he's having to speak at the funeral of his mother-in-law. Uh, after speaking yesterday at 4 p.m. at the funeral of his father-in-law. So, a day apart. The reasons why they're separate, I won't go into that, but but he called and he said, listen, I, I just want to encourage people. And I want to encourage my wife because she's grieving. She's lost her mother and father within a week's time of one another. And, and she's just struggling. I want to encourage. And, and I said, well, here's what you need to do. You need to encourage them in everything you say to consider Jesus, who suffered much more than we ever will. You see, when suffering comes in your life, you'll really handle it one of basically three ways. You'll really look at it and you'll ask the question, do I deserve this suffering? And you'll say, perhaps, well, yes, I do deserve it. I, I kind of brought it on myself. And you'll become discouraged. Oh, how can I get out of this? I, don't, I, I did it. I don't know what to do now. And, and you just kind of become discouraged. Or you can look at the suffering and you can say, well, no, I don't deserve this suffering. Now, that will probably be a lie. No doubt it will be a lie. You, you do probably. But, but you say, I don't deserve this suffering. Why do I get this suffering? I don't deserve it. Other people deserve it more than I do. Why do I get it? And if you do that, you'll become bitter. Uh, you'll become bitter toward God. You'll become bitter toward other people who aren't suffering as much as you are, who you think ought to be. And, and so if you, if you say, yeah, I deserve it. I realize that. It'll crush you. And you'll become despondent and discouraged. If you say, I don't deserve it, then you'll become bitter. Or you'll come to a point of saying, yeah, I do deserve it. But Christ is bearing my suffering with me. And we'll look to Him. 
I mean, we have to realize that all, you know, the, the question is not, as the rabbi Robert uh, Kushner once said, why, why do bad things happen to good people? It's not the question. It's why do good things happen to anybody? That's the real question. Because in reality, we're all sinners and we're all rebellious against God. And, and, and I know we don't like to think of ourselves this way, but we're all in one sense or another bad. When you put the standard of Christ beside us. But the, the point is, in our sin, in our idolatry, in our, in our disobedience, that brings about our suffering. Christ has promised, I'm there with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will not let you go through it alone. I'll walk through it with you. I'll be there with you. I'll carry you if I need to. I will give you the strength and the encouragement to see it through. So the writer says, consider him. If you're going through suffering, if you're going through difficult times, consider him who, who's endured much more hostility than you've ever endured, much more suffering than you've ever endured. He, he, was, he, he had sinners just lashing out against him, spitting at him, uh, calling him every name in the book, beating him, crucifying him. I mean, look at him, consider him, and you'll not grow weary and lose heart. If you just read that without really thinking about it, it might seem rather strange. How can I not lose heart? How can it keep me from losing heart and not growing weary by just considering Jesus and His suffering? Because we realize that He suffered far greater in order to redeem us and be with us and carry us and protect us in the midst of whatever we find ourselves. He even goes as far to say, and we'll get into discipline next week. Thought we would today, but we won't. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. It's a race, it's a run, it's a competition with yourself in some respect, but it's running the race, seeking the prize, fixing your eyes on Jesus, and yeah, you're going to suffer along the way, you're going to have some problems along the way, but you have not yet reached the point of shedding of blood. And, and obviously he's talking about shedding blood because of your faith. You're not, you've not been threatened with death yet. You've not been threatened with, with really having to bleed for the Lord Jesus Christ yet so consider him he did he bled he died he was beaten he was cursed he, everything he went through much more than you and you haven't reached that point yet so be encouraged <laughs> you're hurting okay great count it joy you haven't got there yet some commentators I read even thought that the writer was referring to the uh, pentathlon that was kind of the finale of the Olympics and it, it included running and jumping and swimming and, and, and all these different and javelin throwing and discus throwing and everything and had all the events wrapped in it and then the grand finale was sort of a boxing match you run the race, you throw the javelin you do all these things but the real final time 
is, is this wrestling and boxing match, not like what we think of today. You know, now they box, they put on these heavy padded gloves and they pound each other about. In the pentathlon, they put on leather coverings over their hand to protect their hands, but to just beat the, to a pulp, their opponent. It disfigured, bring blood, it would bring pain and agony. And, and, and the writer here is kind of paralleling that, some commentators believe, to say, listen, you're running the race, you're throwing the discus, you're, you're, you're jumping over the hurdles, you're swimming the swim, you're doing everything, but you hadn't yet got to the, you have not yet got to the end where you put on the gloves and you really have to duke it out. He says, that's okay. Because the Lord has already done that in your place. He's already fought the fight. He's already won the victory. Listen, look when you suffer. Look unto Him. Consider Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Get all the idols out of the way. Break away from the eclipse and look to Christ. And when you do, you will find hope. You won't lose heart. You'll trust that everything God brings into your life is necessary. And everything that he doesn't bring into your life is unnecessary. We tend to think we have a lot of things that are necessary in our life and God's not giving them to us. Just rest assured, if you're not getting those things, it's probably because they'll become an idol and distract you and eclipse Christ in your life. So everything that he withholds is not necessary. And everything that comes... Even suffering. If you want to understand that better, be with us Wednesday night when we talk about the Lordship of Christ in our theology study. But, but when you... Everything that He sends, everything that He allows into your life is necessary for your sanctification and for your stronger walk with Him. That's the whole concept of discipline that He brings that we'll talk about in full next week. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, when we consider that Christ bore it all for every believer, He bore the pain and the suffering that we might be able to look unto Him and be encouraged and not lose heart. Father, we thank You for that. And, and we pray this morning, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit will encourage us who are believers. And Lord, we pray Your Holy Spirit will break hearts that are unbelievers and bring them to faith in Christ. Lord, we're grateful. Grateful for the cross. We sung about it. We, we sang about there's a fountain. We sang about that you are mighty to save. We, we sang about a firm foundation and your amazing grace and you are a God who saves. How deep your love is for us. Wow. I mean, all of that, Father, just fits with the understanding why we need to put aside every idol by your power, by your grace, by your help. Lay aside every idol, every encumbrance, every sin 
that entangles us that we might walk in you. Father, be gracious and grant that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.